Welcome to Radio KBPV, Tales of Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village, a podcast about the history of southwestern Alberta, presented by Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village of Pincher Creek, a museum complex that documents the stories of Western Canada's agricultural settlement through the preservation of local buildings and artifacts among a six-acre park. Pincher Creek is a town of 3,700 souls in a vast rural trading area of some 3,000 rural dwellers. A vibrant region of rolling prairie, foothills, the Rocky Mountains, the Pecani First Nation, Waterton Lakes National Park, the Crow's Nest Pass, and the Upper River Watershed of the South Saskatchewan River Basin. Join us in this podcast where we present walking tours of our buildings and hear the stories of the farmers, townsmen, cowboys, mounties, pioneer women, politicians, chroniclers, miners, railroaders, and so many other significant histories of this particular corner of Canada. Hello, Ranger Gort here. Welcome back to Radio KBPV, the podcast of Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village. Well, we are definitely into the uh, holiday season here at, at Radio KBPV, and we certainly have uh, events coming up. Uh, we've just had our book sale, and I'll be speaking quite a bit more on that later, but I just wanted to remind you, um, as I post this today. It is uh, November 23rd, uh, coming up on uh, Friday, uh, November 26th. We'll be participating in the uh, Chamber of Commerce's Black Friday, so we'll be open a little bit later than we usually are. I believe we'll be open till about 8 o'clock, so come on in for any of your shopping needs, uh, especially books. But we had, our country store does have a lot of uh, very tasteful, elegant gifts that I'm sure you'd like to have a look at. Uh, meanwhile, don't forget about our upcoming cookie sale on the first, always the first uh, Sunday of every December, and I believe that follows on the 5th this year. And uh, that'll run from 10 o'clock until 4, and uh, you can also get pre-orders on that. If you're used to coming to our bake sale, well, things have changed a little bit because of COVID. If you were there last year, you know what those arrangements are. But you can avoid uh, the COVID rush and get guaranteed uh, your baked goods if you just go online to our kootenaybrown.ca or our Facebook page, and you can get that pre-order list and shop from the convenience of your... Uh, iPad or device or piece of paper, whatever you like. Uh, in that week following the cookie sale, uh, we'll be having uh, several different uh, crafters courses uh, going on in the afternoons at the village. And again, go online to see what those courses are. They're, they're changing uh, every day, but we do know who some of them are right now. Uh, confirmations are usually uh, based on whether those crafters can get their own supplies, and that's an issue these days, especially in light of the uh, the recent uh, transportation issues in British Columbia, our neighbor to the west. Also, of course, that culminates in uh, Christmas in the Village coming up on the Saturday the 12th. So you won't want to miss that. Uh, lots of Christmas vendors there, and they'll be scattered all around the village in different buildings. 
So you'll get to wander around the village and, of course, see our historic period buildings. Uh, there will be a kid's craft available and a visit from, oh, some guy from up north, I suppose. But what I wanted to do here right now is our book sale was very successful. We had 16 authors. And uh, if you subscribe to this podcast, you know that uh, we were we had uh, quite a bit of audio available for you uh, prior to that to let you know who some of those were. And during that evening, I was able to uh, pin down some three of our new auth- newer authors that are attending the uh, the sale now and and uh, continue to have their books available in our in our gift country store gift shop. And that was uh, Joni McFarlane, uh, Fran Jenneru, and Roy Davidson. To be fair, Fran Jenneru has been with us about two or three years, but she hasn't been available since we've been doing the podcast. So uh, we have a little bit of a short audio interviews with them, and you can find out all about their books. And uh, I'll be speaking as to what they are at the introduction of each one of these uh, vignettes. Well, first up is Joni McFarland from the Crow's Nest Pass, who is a cook and a longtime uh, writer and uh, photographer as well. And she has put together some of her uh, recipes into three books that you can get here at the country store. That'll give you an entire year of recipes for soup or salad or party foods and appetizers. So here's Joni. Okay, my name's Joni McFarland, and I'm a cookbook author, and I have three cookbooks out. I live in the Rocky Mountains of Southwest Alberta and the Crow's Nest Pass, where I write cookbooks and grow my own vegetables and herbs and do a lot of cooking, which I love to do. So I started with soups because I make a million soups and I have tons of recipes and I thought, well, I should start writing some of them down. So I did. And my husband said, well, maybe you should take photographs of them. So I started taking photographs of them, which was a ton of fun. Just in time for the social media age. Just in time, yeah. You know, everybody was taking pictures of their dinner. There you go. Now I wish they were. <laughs> and um, then I put them in, the, in a book and I thought, well, I was just going to offer it to family and and friends but they started selling and they did amazingly well because everybody loves soup and um, then I thought well I have a a million salad recipes so I did a second book with salads and just kept going and then I did a third book with appetizers and party foods just before COVID hit no one was entertaining anymore so, uh, yeah. But everybody is at home. But everybody's at home. You know, you've got to have something in front of that Netflix. That's right. Everybody still wants to eat. And people who uh, maybe didn't cook before have started cooking because they are at home more. A lot of bread got baked. Yeah, a lot of bread got baked. Yeah. So that's what I'm, that's what I'm selling. I'm also writing, have written a, no- a fiction novel, which I'm trying oh. to get published. And I'm in the probably three quarters finished my second novel. You're not ever supposed to ask a writer what their book is about, but maybe just give a hint. Well, the first one is um, based on a true story. It's a it's historical. It's based in World War II in Canada at a POW camp for 
merchant marines and navy personnel who were German, who were captured in um, in the Atlantic and shipped to Canada because Britain had run out of room, and we did take many, many thousands of prisoners. And it's the story also in Alberta and Quebec, and so it's the story. It's a spy story also a psychological thriller based on two women who work at this camp. And then the second half is the is post-war Toronto, where the spy story from the camp comes to light. That is very interesting. Yeah, that's quite the variety to go from cookbooks, which is yeah. one of the hottest things you can do in the book markets. I mean, just ask Gene Hoare and, yeah, and yeah. all of those other people. Companies coming, I mean, I don't think anybody could ever own all the companies coming cookbooks. But it's one of, been one of the hottest markets that we could ha ever have. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, it's really good to mm -hmm. have that. And here at Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village, we have a great variety. We have a lot of history books and a lot of different fiction. But cookbooks is just something that will always move here. And I'm um, thrilled to have them here. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, uh, what else was I want to say? Oh, you talked about uh, the recipes. I was just noticing, um, I assume since you are growing your own, this is all sort of organic. And yep. Yeah. Yep. Well, all, all, all vegetables yep. are organic, but they're... No, nope, it is, and I have been a vegetarian for too long to tell <laughs> you. Um but they're not all uh, they're not all vegetarian. Many, many of the recipes are, but some are not. And you can alter them, of course, especially like soup. If you don't like something, you don't put it in, you can exchange it for something else. There's very few of the recipes that you that you have to have meat in. Um, but you can certainly add if you if you choose to. So Joni's cookbook police won't come around if you happen to no. drop a sausage in there. No, because my husband eats meat, oh, right. and so I do cook with meat, and so I have to appease him. So. Well, I often think that I should try to probably do it. Oh, I've cut back a lot on, on my meat as well, but I find I just need that tinge of protein. Well, that's, that's all very well and good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I think that about does it, and I really look Perfect. forward to that novel. So I'm very encouraging. So do I. <laughs> I. I won't have you do anything like set a date because that's the worst thing you do. Is that's right. An author. That's, that's right. Too much pressure. That's like saying uh, break a leg. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank, thank you, Julie. Thank you very much. I appreciate that, and I do really feel thrilled that you carry my cookbooks. Wonderful. Yeah. We're, we're glad to have you here. Okay. Next up is Fran Janaru who comes to us from Calgary, but uh, is Southwest Alberta born and raised and has uh, several familial connections and relationships here in the Pincher Creek area. And she has penned a biography of a very interesting personal relative of hers. And so here's Fran. My name is Fran Janaru and I've written a book. It's called Being Bertha, How a Wayward Woman Became a Local Legend. It's the story of my grandmother's sister, Bertha Eklund, who was also Bertha Marshall. She was born and grew up in the Twin Butte, Pincher Creek area, but she didn't stay there. Her life took her to a variety of different places, including San Francisco and Oregon, but she kept coming back to Southern Alberta. Her roots were here. Bertha was an independent woman who made her own decisions, and some of them were good decisions, 
Some of them were terrible decisions, and she um, always had the consequences to deal with. For years, my family had told stories about Bertha. Some of them were hard to believe. Some of them were kind of outrageous. And we always thought we wanted to make sure we didn't lose Bertha's story. So I took on the job of writing our family story and telling Bertha's life, and that's where the book came from. I had lots of help from family who collected letters and records and pictures and gave me the task of telling the story the best that I could. Did you ever actually know Bertha yourself in your lifetime, or did you intertwine at all? I was about two years old when Bertha moved to BC. So yes, we met, but I certainly don't remember it. You didn't have that impressions of her. She was just uh, some older lady that was you knew was related to you, and that's about it. But uh, Not even that much, because yeah. she moved away, and she died in 1968, I believe it was. Um, so she wasn't a person in my life. She didn't live close by, and actually the family didn't talk about her a lot because some people were hurt by the things she did, some people were embarrassed, and other people just adored her and didn't want to spoil the image. So it definitely was a different time, you know, in which she was living in a very puritanical era. And, uh, you know, your, the expectations of women of what women were supposed to act and how to do were definitely different. So you're sort of painting a picture of her against those times, I would imagine. Bertha disregarded all of that and did what she wanted. <laughs> Just the maverick. Yes, she yeah. was. She was uh, her own person. Um, and uh, as I said, she, she went ahead. She married two or three times, married Roy Marshall at least twice, which was kind of unheard of in those times. Divorces were... Married the same man twice. Yes, she did. Oh, is that right? Yes, she did. <laughs> Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor. <laughs> As I said, she, she just threw the rules out and, and did what she wanted to. So there are, are some landmarks around Waterton that mm -hmm. are significant of her? If you go to Waterton, uh, there's a trailhead right in the town site that is the Bertha Trail. It leads up to the Bertha Falls, Bertha Lake, which is just below Bertha Peak, and the creek drains into Bertha Bay in the Waterton Lake. Most of the mountains in Waterton are named after battles or British soldiers or generals, and there's this one little part of the park that has Bertha written all over it. This was named after my great aunt Bertha. In the early days of the park, she impressed some of the young wardens and they wanted to make sure that they were in her good books. So they named the lake Bertha Lake unofficially, and it stuck. So you don't get much more of an impression on the landscape than having your, your first name on it as well. It's not Marshall, it's not Eklund, it's Bertha. And it's her mountain. And everybody knew who Bertha was. I think they did. Yeah. I think they did. And, and again, in the book, there's conversation about maybe uh, why she was so well known. Sort of like uh, reminds me of uh, Gray in his book Red Lights on the Prairie. He talks about during World War II where some of the uh, soldiers said, Pearl Harbor, hell, remember Pearl Miller. <laughs> <laughs> well, people remember Bertha, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you think you've sold your book. Thank you. All right, and of course that's available on Amazon and all of the good places, but... We prefer you buy it at Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village, and we do have an online store. 
and our final presenter is Roy Davidson, a local business professional on Main Street, well-known here in town, who has a very interesting personal pursuit that has taken him um, into the mountains and some uh, amazing journeys and discoveries into himself and into the indigenous history of southwestern Alberta. So here's Roy. My name is Roy Davidson, and I... Uh... I spent a lot of time in the outdoors. A number of years ago, I found an old trail that was used by Aboriginal people prehistorically, I understand for perhaps 10,000 years. And uh, having discovered that trail in the early 2000s, I became fascinated with the history. I began researching, doing primary research, uh, journals, diaries, uh, things that were written by fur traders, trappers, Peter Fiddler, uh, Alexander Henry, the Younger, uh, David Thompson, all sorts of people. Anybody that wrote anything back in the day, I read that. And the more I read, the more I realized that everything that I had learned growing up in southern Alberta was wrong. Yeah, it really is. And so I, I just felt that I'd been hard done by. I, I wanted others who had learned the same wrong stuff that I did to know something different. So I tried to figure out how I would do that and I'd never seen myself as a writer but I began writing. Pretty soon I'm 150 pages into it and and loving it and, and really enjoying it. And I, I wrote to show the, the Aboriginal culture for what it was which in my mind, it was a magnificent culture, um, a, 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 a wonderful culture, the likes of which we never learned in school. We learned all the stuff that the European, if I may say, colonizers uh, wrote about what they encountered out here, and it just wasn't true. So I wanted to give a, a different perspective, one that I think is more accurate. And... So I began writing fiction, and my purpose was to pass on to others what I had learned in my research. So you were sort of writing a history-backed fiction. So you sort of have uh, facts of what you have learned that is backing up a narrative. That's true. It, it's a historical fiction, and there are a few real, actual characters in it that my fictional characters bump into and rub shoulders with. One of them was a fellow named John Rowland, who was the factor at uh, Edmonton House. One pound one. One pound one, you betcha. <laughs> I tell that story to school kids. Oh, yeah, one yeah, pound they one. They love that. The yep. scarier, the better. Yep. And uh, one of the others, uh, a few of the others are, are historical Native people. and um, But they just encounter one another. I'm not trying to... Um, make any comment or say anything about them other than just sort of mention them by name that you know my characters ran into them um and uh yeah it's it's uh something i don't think is is out there there's a bit of that sort of thing uh but too much of what's out there is hollywood and i don't think it's it's accurate it's not true it's not fair and a lot of it is backed by, as you say, you know, the colonizers had the, 
the good fortune to be able to tell the story. You know, they were telling... Uh, they were telling a story with an agenda. They were telling a story from a British-backed, Euro-backed... Well, they, they all were, really. Yeah. But the ones who sort of made the history and wrote the history books were not the ones who experienced it. And the research that I did were... were it, it, it came from the writings of people who were among the first to encounter the Blackfoot. And everybody's... Everybody's writing is biased to some extent, but I think these people's bias, being who they were, you know, they weren't anthropologists, they weren't historians, they were, they were trappers and, and traders, and they just wrote what they saw. And, and that's where I got my material from. I, I didn't read, to the point I started writing, I hadn't read any fiction hadn't written any books like the books that I write because I don't want somebody else's opinion. I wanted to know as close to the horse's mouth as I could get. So that's where my information comes from. Has there been any, or what? has there been any uh, feedback from the First Nations community, such as the Pagani or mm -hmm. the... Uh, I have some friends at Pagani, and I've talked with them about it. Um, I've talked with them about some of the aspects of my book and I, I haven't consulted them. I haven't said, is this true or what? Well, I have said, so what do you think? Um, I have one friend who read a very early draft of my book and said, hey, this is great. I'm going to use it in my curriculum. She's a she's a teacher out at Begani, uh, although she's not there anymore. And the feedback that I've got has been affirming. Um, some people have said, "Well, Roy, you can't do this because it's cultural appropriation." And quite frankly, I call bull on that. I do too. Because I I have read the material um, that people wrote down as late as, I mean, as early as 1792, Peter Fiddler, and, uh, and David Thompson, and, and all sorts of people like that. And some nondescript people that we wouldn't ordinarily be familiar with. And so I have written a fiction based on what they told me, what they wrote, what they observed. And I have tried to be... So you're not be... really editorializing? No, no. I, I've tried desperately hard to keep my opinion, my views, my values out of it. Now, how can you separate yourself from your values? It's very difficult. It's difficult. Yeah. If you're not so, in the writing, then yeah. you're not writing. Yeah. So I think I've done a reasonably good job of keeping my biases out. And if... If I've had a conscious bias, it's been to try to reflect as accurately as I possibly can the Aboriginal worldview at the time. At the time. At the time. That's, yep. that's the perfect way to say it. And I will also be the first to acknowledge, and I think it's fair to say that the Aboriginal worldview today is not what was in 1834. And it's not today what it's going to be in the year 2050 either. 
this is a snapshot. And uh, it, it, the first book covers the period from 1835 to 1837, and the second book, 1837 to about the mid-1850s. That's and a time of incredible change. Well, it is, and it's the reason I chose that is because it's some of the first contact that Blackfoot had with Europeans, and I chose the age of the main characters, which is early teens, because that's sort of the coming of age time. Um, when uh, a Blackfoot boy was 13, 14, he was being groomed and actively trained and making his way in life. And he's exploring life in the same way that the reader is exploring that boy's life. And um, yeah, I've tried to be accurate and fair and uh, sometimes, I mean, it's a different culture than we're used to today. It's a world that we can't understand. It's, it's a world we have difficulty understanding today. You know, but when you, when, when you get into the, into the history and into the culture, you can kind of get out of your today's understanding of, of what the world was. For example, and, and the subject of residential schools is big topic today. I've known about residential schools and, and uh, burial sites, unmarked burial sites for a number of years. And I would go on record as saying that the, the message that the Aboriginals are giving us today in November of 2021 is true and valid, and we're only seeing the tip of the iceberg. Um, but what I'm, the point I'm, I'm, I'm making is that the wisdom of the day among the Europeans and even some of the Aboriginal people was send these kids off to residential school. We we think it's abhorrent today, and it is. It was a it was a travesty. It was it was a holocaust. It, it was genocide. But it it was the wisdom of the day. From the, 18, the best minds from said, the 1890s point of view. If I go back to Red Crow or the Kainai, he said we're going into a different world, and it's time for our people to go and learn this world. Yes. And we have always adapted over time to the horse, to trade, to whatever came down there. We have to adapt to this. Mm -hmm. But it proved to be something almost unadaptable. Mm -hmm. In fact, Red Crow was the first person in the Kainai to send his son yep. off to the residential yep. school. But nobody would have foreseen that it would have been what it was. Exactly. So Perverted. if there was an opportunity for a Red Crow's son uh, to go to university, become a physician, become a politician, that would be a whole different kettle of fish. Yeah. But because those in charge said, well, no, they are incapable of, of higher learning and all they can be is farmers and, and, and wait on white people, they got the, the worst of the worst. It was the social Darwinism. Yep. We have yep. to we have to let this thing die out this, yep. this wilderness thing. Yep. Yep. Well, that's fascinating, and I think I'll let you go. I think okay. that's uh, I really look forward to reading these books, and um, 
well, I, I'm here not far from your office, so look forward to getting to know you better. Good deal. Look All forward right. to that, too. Thank you. Well, thank you once again for tuning in, folks, to Radio KBPV. And uh, I hope you'll uh, take the opportunity to come on in and see uh, who some of our, our, our authors are in our book selection in, uh, in the Country Store Bookshop. And uh, I think there's some great and unique gifts for those who like to read and those who know someone who like to read. Uh, again, for our upcoming events at Radio KBV and uh, confirmation of our shopping hours, just go, uh, you can't go do better than go to our website or our Facebook pages. Uh, the website is kootenaybrown.ca and the Facebook page is under Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village and the Country Store. So thanks and uh, we'll see you again. Thank you for listening to Tales of Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village. This episode was researched and written by historians Farley Wood and Gord Tolton. This podcast is recorded and engineered by Gord Tolton. Episodes can be found at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, or any other podcatcher. Visit our website at www.kootenaybrown.ca. Kootenay is spelled K O O. T-E-N-A-I Also, visit and join our pages on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for more information on our museum or even better, visit us at 1037 Beverly McLaughlin Drive in beautiful Pincher Creek, Alberta.